Welcome to the Brass Spittoon, the podcast of the Front Porch Republic. We'll chew on issues timeless and timely with a focus on place, limits, and liberty. I'm your host, John Murdoch. Madison, Wisconsin was the site for the 2023 Front Porch Republic Conference. The theme, Living as Humans in a Machine Age. The keynoter, the noted anti-machinist author Paul Kingsnorth. In this first of two conference talks, Paul shares some of the names that Roger Scruton and others have called him during a half-century plus of life on this planet. The audience responds in a song appropriate for the occasion, and FPR President Mark Mitchell starts us off. Pull up a chair and enjoy. My name is Mark Mitchell. I'm the president of Front Porch Republic. I'd like to welcome you to our annual conference. And I'd like to give a special thank you to the Center for the Study of Liberal Democracy and my old friend Richard Avermenko in the back, uh, who's hosting us here. And it's been a real treat to work with him again. This year is a little bit different. Typically, our conferences are just a Saturday-only event, but due to what can only be described as um, overwhelming interest in our keynote speaker, uh, we decided to extend our conference to a Friday night event, Paul Kings North. You know much about him, I'm sure. He's a longtime environmental activist and writer. In 2009, incidentally the same year that Front Porch Republic was founded, he co-founded the Dark Mountain Project. It was a, an association of writers who were gathering together to foster new stories for a world that would emerge from the wreck that seemed to be imminent. He's a writer of many books, both fiction and nonfiction. And as the world a few years ago descended into the haze of COVID, his essays that were subsequently published under the title The Vaccine Moment were islands of sanity for many. In June of 2021, the journal First Things published what was really an astounding essay titled The Cross and the Machine, describing Paul's rather surprising conversion to Orthodox Christianity. The last few years, his substack, titled The Abbey of Misrule, has become required reading for a lot of people, and I assume many of us are um, eager every time a new essay drops. His series at the Abbey, describing various aspects of what he calls the machine, has provided a lot of clarity for these confused times. We at FPR are delighted that he has agreed to join us and has traveled so far to be here with us. So please join me in welcoming Paul Kingsnorth. Quite a lot of pressure, isn't it? That. <laughs> Quite a lot of pressure to start with. Um, so yeah, I have just flown uh, 4,000 miles to come and talk to you about localism. 
So that's probably all I need to say, really. Um, I'm just going to foreground my hypocrisy on that because then we get that out of the way. Um, you should probably take everything else I say with a pinch of salt as well. Um, let's get my water. For, uh, you know, sometimes you need to swig when you've forgotten what you were going to say. Um, so I have actually been reading Front Porch Republic on and off for a long time. So it is really nice to be here, actually. And it was a great honor to be invited. Didn't know what to expect. You never do when you come to these kinds of things. But um, what I like about it is I think I often feel when I'm reading it, and maybe I'll feel here today that I'm, I'm in a place where people possibly share or at least understand whatever it is my politics are. Because I'm not sure what they are myself uh, in terms of the way that we usually talk about these things. Um, I've been on a long journey for 30 years or so. I'm one of those people who foolishly tries to work out what's going on in the world and I suppose what to do about it, but I've never found any kind of political home, really, or cultural home. Uh, and if you feel like that as well, then you'll find that the result of agreeing and disagreeing at the same time with almost every faction going um, is that you get called a colourful array of names by a lot of different sides, which I think is a, is a sign of your being in the right place. Um, I've had a beautifully diverse range of labels stuck on me over the years, including communist, anarchist, uh, reactionary, crazy collapsitarian, I like that one, that was a good one, woolly, woolly liberal, uh, soy boy, nativist, cave dweller, Luddite, romantic, uh, left-wing oikophile. That was Roger Scruton, actually, called me a left-wing oikophile. Um, he wasn't insulting me, it was just descriptive. I was quite flattered. Um, left-wing oikophile, eco-socialist, uh, eco-fascist, uh, proto-fascist. I'm not sure what the difference is. Uh, Duma, nihilist, uh, lower-middle-class eco-toff. That was a good one. Lower-middle-class toff. It was good. You have to, be, have to be English to really get the complexity of that one. Um, and my current favourite is environmental activist turned apocalyptic mystic. <laughs> this is good. Um, I, I like them all, really. I'm, I'm happy with them. Um, but, uh, you know, you can't get on really with either of the teams on the left and the right, I think, if you're paying attention, if those words even mean anything. I find, generally speaking, at the moment, a lot of people on the right are obsessed with preserving culture, whatever culture even is. Uh, they don't have very much interest in preserving nature. A lot of people on the left have exactly the opposite problem. Whereas I think, and I think I've always thought, that not only do both of those things matter, nature and culture, but really they're the same thing. Or they're so intimately entwined that it's impossible for them not to be the same thing. Um, there isn't a competition. And I think, probably at root, if I were to think about the, the worldview that's informed everything I've written, whether it's fiction or non-fiction, whatever it quite is, some of the things I've written are a bit of both and a bit of neither, it boils down to a suspicion of power and a desire for roots. And I think that both of those are pretty natural and human and normal and not really open to politicization very usefully. But we're in a time when everything's politicized and so it's very difficult not to be labeled or to label yourself. But I think everything I've written over the last 25 years, which is nine books now, soon to be 10, and a manifesto, the Dark Mountain Manifesto, goodness knows how many essays, lots of terrible journalism, some poetry, lots of that terrible as well. Um, all of that has been an exploration in some form of those, those things. Desire for roots, whatever that means. Suspicion of power. Um, so I thought maybe, I, since I was asked to talk tonight, I'll just talk a bit about what that means and what I'm writing about it now and where it's maybe going. I'll try not to talk for too long because I've got to talk again tomorrow and you can have too much Kingsnorth. 
and my family are here, so they definitely had too much of me talking. So look, let me, let me talk about my neighbour, Vinny, who recently died. I live in rural Ireland, and our neighbour, a bachelor farmer, Vinny, born in 1927, um, lived in the little cottage next door, and he died a week or a couple of weeks, a few weeks ago now. And Vinny was a character, as a lot of these people are. We only knew him towards the end of his life, but you'd always see him walking around with his cloth cap on or driving his van incredibly slowly, very badly. He, the, the local mechanic got through a lot of work with him replacing the clutch every three months because um, he couldn't really see, so he would drive like that. And he would always stop and say hello if you were there talking to him. It was interesting because he had a very thick Galway accent and I had my English accent, so there was a real kind of ships passing in the night feel about it, but we did it anyway. And um, sometimes you would be woken up at six in the morning by Vinny banging on your window to tell you that his cows had got out again into your garden because he was terrible at fencing, um, despite having such a long experience. But there was, a particular there was a particular type of bachelor farmer that is now dying out in Ireland who really hadn't gone very far away from where they lived ever. And they would move around the community and they would move around their land and they would have their cows and that was the work. And I went to the doctor a while back and the doctor told me I had high cholesterol. I was all the stress standing up doing things like this, I think. Um, <laughs> but um, the doctor said, don't do any more talks. So <laughs> no, he, didn't, he didn't really. So it's, uh, yeah, if I drop dead, it's your fault. Um, but anyway, the doctor also told me that al almost anybody under 40 now in Ireland has high cholesterol. It's all the terrible pizza and the, and the, and the kind of sedentary lifestyles, whereas people like Vinny very, very rarely have that problem because all he did was walk around. He ate bacon and cabbage. He didn't really go anywhere. He was in his community. That, that, co that, that combination of just being in the place with the people you are and, being in, and doing the things you are is, is very particular, and it's gone now. And I went to Vinny's funeral and... Uh, in the little local church, and uh, his nephew John, who is a farmer as well, usually very stoical man, uh, was a very emotional, and he gave a very moving sermon, a uh, very moving talk, and he said this, he was the, really the last of his kind. There's very few people like this left. And he said he came from a time when everything was done by hand, or it wasn't done at all. That was the world he moved in. And when Vinnie was born, this is 1927, and Ireland it was really the last peasant culture of Europe, Western Europe anyway. Um, and everything was done by hand and mostly made by hand as well. I mean, everything from the houses to the fencing to the clothing. And it wasn't so long ago. Material poverty was very common. So was organic community. Society was smaller, it was more localised, it was deeply religious. Where Vinny lived, which is where we live now, there certainly would have been no cars, no TVs, no electric wires, not till the 1960s. If you wanted to go into town, which is six or seven miles distant, you'd have to walk or go on your bike, maybe go on a horse and cart if you had one of those. So that's the world he was born into, and by the time he died in a local, he was in a local nursing home in the end, but had his family around him. He's in the world of the internet, social media, great big box cars, uh, a country whose economy is predicated on the growth of the server farms of Apple and Google and Facebook. All of those words would have made no sense to him except the first one, Apple, because they grew in the garden. Um, and I just thought about this. I thought about this, this world that has passed that is now inaccessible. This world that has passed that's gone. There was something Eric Hobsbawm, the historian, the English historian, said once that he said with the, the thing that happened in the 20th century that marked an irrevocable break with the world of the past was the death of the peasantry. Because once that's gone, you can't go back there. You can, you can move off to rural island like I, I have and grow some vegetables, but you're not in that place. Even if you wanted to be, you can't be. 
And I thought about this, I read a bit of writing by the American writer Rand Prieur, who's an interesting character, uh, a while back, and he was writing about how he tried a, a bit of a homesteading life a few years back, and he noticed when he was working on the land, uh, the impact of technology, particularly, and how advanced technology, so-called, has made life worse by promising to make it better. And he noticed, he wrote about what he noticed when he was working on the land with manual tools of the kind that Vinnie always used. And, and I, I thought it was good because I noticed the same thing. So he writes this. On my last trip to the land, I noticed something. Getting into a groove of mindless, repetitive work is centering. If you're feeling terrible, it makes you feel pretty good. If you're feeling super hyped, it makes you feel pretty good. So what happens when an entire society has all mindless, repetitive work done by machines? Now, instead of working with wood, working your wood with hand tools, which is meditative, we do it with power tools, which is stressful because you can kill yourself at any moment. Right? It's the same with driving instead of walking. We've made progress according to one narrow equation, which is more transformation of the world per human attention. In many other ways, machine power is a serious misstep. Of course, it consumes more actual energy, which comes from hidden unsustainable sources. Also, more transformation per attention means more stress and more and bigger mistakes. And finally, Without the centering effect of meditative physical work, depressed people stay depressed, and fanatical people stay fanatical. All of them pushing us towards apocalypse. I thought that was pretty good. And I thought it said something very true. And it said that the life that people like Vinnie led actually was more sane. Much more sane. Much smaller, but much more sane. And more human, but also not accessible to us anymore in the age of the machine. Can't go back to it. Some door has been shut. That death of the peasantry, that door has been shut. Now, a week before Vinnie died, I was in Dublin with my wife, and we were attending a citizenship ceremony because we were granted Irish citizenship after living in the country for nearly 10 years. And there were 1,000 people at this ceremony, and they were from 131 countries. Now, Ireland has historically been a land of emigration, everybody leaving because of the poverty and the oppression and the imperial... Uh, misery, really, over many centuries. And now it's a land of immigration, like much of modern Europe. Technically, Ireland is the richest country in Europe. You wouldn't actually know it to drive around on the terrible roads and go to the terrible hospitals, but it, it is, on paper, at least. I don't know who's got the money, but there is a lot of money. And so, obviously, there's, therefore, a lot of inward migration, and that's uh, changing the country in the way that it's changing countries everywhere now. So we've got globalism, liberalism, internationalism really coming to this country as it's come to everywhere else. But there we were in this ceremony, and there was the uh, fantastic great army band playing these songs. They were playing all these great Irish tunes, and then they also played Bohemian Rhapsody by Queen, um, which was the only song that got a round of applause from the audience. Um, so there you go. Um, and they sung the national anthem, and the, they had the, the colours were marched on the flag, and there was a minister and a retired high court judge giving speeches. And it was lovely, actually. It was really nice. It was very moving optimistic and we sort of made temporary friends all over the world and some of them had been born in Ireland and some of them had just come in and some of them like us had been there for a while and, and the judge who was a real character whose ancestry in Ireland went back many centuries he said that after this ceremony every single one of us in this room would be as Irish as him I thought it was really nice but I thought about this when Vinnie died and I thought am I really as Irish as him the answer is no not really I mean legally I am legally I am but culturally no I've come from somewhere else, I'm English. And not only am I English, but I'm from a particular class, a background, and a cult part of the country. So I don't, 
I, don't, I could never feel like him. But at the same time, I've been in the country for 10 years, so I actually am feeling somewhat Irish. I'm feeling less English than I used to. I'm feeling less British than I used to. Some, something happens when you sort of transfer, but it's a slow process. It's interesting. It can't really be summed up by, by the piece of paper you have. And again, I was thinking about place, relationship to place, relationship to time, ancestry, all these sorts of things, what it means to be human, um, how much it matters. Now, I've always written about place and the relationship to that, and sometimes it gets me plaudits and sort of nice introductions, and sometimes it gets me an internet mobbing. And I've always done it for some slightly ill-understood reason. It's interesting to me. And it may be that the reason I relentlessly keep writing about place and belonging is that I've never really had a place I've belonged to. So I grew up in England, but my family always moved around. I, can't, I don't have a hometown I can go back to and say, well, all of my ancestors are in the graveyard here. I don't have a home, a family home I can go to. My parents are always moving every five or six years. I'm an Englishman. I live in Ireland with my Anglo-Indian wife. I've got the blood of my Greek Cypriot grandmother swilling around my veins somewhere. So what does all this mean, belonging to a place? Does it matter? Does it matter? What's, what's it about? Why do people talk about it? Why does it animate so much? Does it matter? And the question is going to get noisier. It's getting noisier all the time. Globalization, technology, lots of high levels of migration within countries, between countries. It's all accelerating. And we have a build-your-own-identity movement at the moment, don't we, in which technology and politics are aligning and persuading the individual that they can literally be anything they want to be and that technology can help them conform to whatever they think they want to be, whatever we think we want to be. So what does place or region or locality or nation or any of these sort of geographical belongings, geographical senses of human meaning, what do they mean to someone who's brought up online, where all the boundaries are blurred, deliberately, where all the identities can be chosen, defined and managed into existence. You can have relationships with people all over the world. What does history mean in that case? What does ancestry mean when identity is self-made rather than inherited? These are all novel questions, really, for the time we're living in. We don't really know the answers to them. I was quite interested in some of these essays I was writing over the last year or two to try and work out what a culture is. Since we're having a culture war, I thought maybe we should find out what a culture is, since we're apparently all having a war over it. Wouldn't it be good to, to work out what we're talking about? Because a lot of people don't seem to know. Um, what is a culture? We're talking about this stuff. Why do we care? Very struck by the fact that if you'd asked Vinny what his culture was, he would have no idea what the question even meant, I'm sure, or what his identity was, any of these sorts of things. You have one, you don't have to think about it. I want to talk a bit more about that tomorrow, but I came up with these slightly gimmicky notions in my essays, these two different trinities which can define what, what a culture is. Um, the modern trinity, the traditional trinity, if you like, trying to pin down what's changed about human culture that we might want to fight about it, or that we just might feel so uprooted at the moment. I've called these uh, little trinities the three S's and the three P's. I'm going to get these put on a T-shirt. I'm going to bring them and sell them next year. So here's a suggestion. You can, we're going to have a Q&A at the end, so you can say anything you want about this, but I'll be quite interested to hear it. But my suggestion in one of the essays I was writing a year or so ago was that there are four key elements which make up a living human culture. So there's a, firstly a sacred source. Okay, that's a religious tradition. Speaks the name of God in its particular form. And then secondly, there's place, which is what I've just been talking about. Okay, nature itself, the localized manifestation of the world that you're in, the peace of the world you're in, wherever that is. Might be where you've come from, might be where you are, might be both. 
And then thirdly, you have culture from below, which you could call folk culture. And then fourthly, you have culture from above, which you can call high culture. And these elements are kind of deliberately ordered. They cascade down from the top, the top one being a sacred source. Okay. Now, some might suggest that the first two, which are essentially God and nature, could be swapped around or that they're intertwined. Who knows? It depends on your tradition. But I think that whichever you choose, if you don't have a link to either place or spirit or both, then your culture will not only fail to flourish but might not manifest at all. And you could see these four elements as four legs of a stool. You could maybe cut one off and the stool would still be sittable on just about, be a bit wonky. But you might be able to manage without high culture or possibly folk culture. But, for example, a nomadic culture doesn't really have a link to place. Doesn't, it's not rooted in a place. Nomads move around. They still have a, often a very rich culture. Um, but they're, they're no less culturally or spiritually rich than people who have a rooted culture. But you can't take more than one leg off the stool, otherwise it's not a stool anymore. Um, you just get firewood. So if you wanted to summarize that, catchily you could use this notion of the three Ps, people, place, and prayer. Okay, that's what I think. Maybe people, place, and prayer are what sum up a culture. A group of people that you feel you're part of, place you're in, that you understand and have a connection to, hopefully, and prayer, your connection to God. That's what make up... I think the source of value in a pre-modern culture anywhere in the world. Cultures can be radically different, but I think you could look at them all in that way. People, place, and prayer at the root of them. But since the advent of modernity, whenever that was, maybe since the Industrial Revolution or the Enlightenment or the French Revolution, the American Revolution, wherever you want to put the pin in the map, these values have all been superseded by others. And we could call them the three S's, sex, science, and the self. Okay, so the first, which is, well, let's call it science, sex, and the self. So science replaces the religious story as our means of knowing and explaining reality. Sex is the central source of sacral pleasure and individual identity. And the self replaces God at the apex of the hierarchy of being. You have you put yourself, your identity, if you like, where God was, because we don't believe in God anymore, of course. And you mix that up with a century or two of capitalism and you stir in some religious language about power and immortality and progress. And you get the essence of the new religion, which is this Religion of progress, the techno-industrial machine, which manifests through the wires and the screens and is changing our, our very understanding of reality and our relationship to it all the time. Now, Fritjof Schuon, traditionalist thinker, once said that the pre-modern world was a good thing which contained much evil, and the modern, modern world is an evil thing which contains much good. I quite like that. Um, and he said that given that, it would be madness to prefer the modern world to the pre-modern world, which might be true. And my instinct is to agree with it, but can't go back to it. And if anything showed me that, it was in his funeral. Okay, his world died before he died. And you might be able to say, actually, that Ireland was briefly something of a front porch republic in the 20th century, although nobody sits on their front porches in Ireland because you get soaked you do that. <laughs> so they really have front porches, actually, but you know what I mean? But now it's a Silicon Valley colony. The, its economy is run from California. And the last of the old peasants of Western Europe are on their way out now. And as one of them told the American writer Lawrence Millman many decades ago in a phrase which gave him the title for his great book about the Irish West, our like will not be here again. Yeah, our like will not be here again. And they're not. We're not their like. We are our like. This is the time we've been given, and not only are we not living in Vinny's world, which over here would probably be Wendell Berry's world, same sort of generation, I think. We're not even living in the world that existed 
from the post-war years until the 1990s, I think. The world of the counterculture, the world of the back to the landers, the world of liberalism, whatever it was, and the world I grew up in. Um, you can afford to go back to the land now. I don't know what it's like in America, but very few people can afford to go back to the land. You're a young person, you want to buy a few acres and a cow. You've got to be a millionaire to live simply in England, I can tell you. That's why I'm in Ireland. And anyway, you do go back to the land, you find out that there's exhausted soil and mosquitoes in October and the squirrels haven't gone home. Okay? You, you go back to the Shire and Sauron is scouring it. There is, you know, it's a, one thing I've noticed in my 51 years on Earth, 51 years today, it's my birthday today, so thank you. <laughs> this, is, um, this is obviously the thing I most wanted to do on my birthday, was to stand and nervously talk in front of a group of strangers. So you can be, be gentle with me, thank you. Uh, but one of the things I've noticed is that people need a place to be in the sense of the place they come from, they need roots. Whatever those roots are, however they interpret those roots, they need a sense of roots because we're not free-floating individuals that just move around the world like chess pieces on a chessboard. We situate ourselves in time and place. We all have what Simone Weil called this need for roots, great book, The Need for Roots by Simone Weil. If you haven't read it, you should. And the modern experiment is an experiment in pulling all those roots up and scattering us around all over the world, cut off from the past, chasing the money. This is what we do. And we're supposed to be compensated for by all the exciting gadgets and the apps and all the rest of it. It's interesting. And sometimes I think, without wanting to be rude, that America is the ultimate example of this great experiment. And yet Ireland and Europe fills up every summer with Americans coming back to look for their roots. Okay, the, the Irish make a lot of money off this. I tell you, a lot of money to be made because people want to know who they are, where they came from, for different reasons. And it's interesting that the less we experience genuine roots, it seems to me, the more we want to talk about this thing called identity, which is something that fills up the gap where actual roots used to be. And people who have actual roots don't talk about identity because what is it? Who needs to? Don't really. Um, so you can't live, I think, without the past, without place, without some sense of heritage or culture. And you shouldn't be too attached to it either, but you can't live without it. You have to have some line that connects you in some way to this notion of people, place and prayer. So... Just to end, I'll, I'll ask this question, and I'll talk about this more tomorrow, but the question is where that actually leads us in this kind of blank slate age, where we're so keen to believe that through our networks we can rebuild everything from scratch. Often I'm jealous of people like Vinny, because he never had to think about any of this. But here we are, and today we have to think about everything. We're more informed than everybody, as anyone has ever been, and we have to think about absolutely every aspect of our lives, define it, and argue about it, and see everybody else doing the same thing all the time. And you can go off to live in rural Ireland, but as long as you've got a smartphone, no, you haven't escaped from anything. So that's why these days I find the third of these P's of mine, which is prayer, encroaching on all the other ones. Really, that's actually the root of the matter. And again, I'll talk more about this tomorrow. Maybe it's just me, but it gets harder and harder to live without it. Actually, it's the, the still point of the turning world. That's where I've come to after 30 years of flailing about, back to where I should have been in the first place. And, and the thing about prayer, it's also, and this is important, it's the thing that stops the other two, these people in place, from curdling into something nasty they can do, right? We know that. We know that. We know where too much attachment to people in place leads. We've seen what history gives us there. We all know what sort of brutality and bigotry and smallness we're all, we're all capable of. 
in the name of those things. Well, we're capable of it in the name of almost anything, but certainly in the name of our people and our place, we can do terrible things to each other. So the question, I've had it for years, how can you be rooted without falling into that trap? Rooted but not too rooted. How can you love places without idolizing them or belong to a community without fossilizing it? Without being motivated by fear that what you've got is going to die, which of course it is, because everything does. I don't know what the answer is, because if I did, I could write a definitive book and then I could retire. <laughs> it's been my plan, but it hasn't happened yet. But maybe it has something to do with holding lightly to all of this, because we're not Vinny's generation, but we can't be plateless, placeless and rootless, and we can't want to be, and we can't be anyway. So how do you do it? You hold lightly to it, perhaps. Stand your ground, but don't become too rigid doing that. Be in your place like a tree that bends with the wind but doesn't break because of the storm. There's a lot of storms now. There's a lot of fear and anger tempting us to be rigid, hunchback. There's a great book some of you will know by the theologian Stanley Hauerwas called Resident Aliens, which is what he said Christians should be in the world, resident aliens. I love that. It's rather good. It sort of, uh, goes with C.S. Lewis's notion that a Christian is it's like a soldier landing on a beach in enemy-occupied territory. It's really good too. So I think maybe trying to live by this more and more is just a way of thinking about roots, feeling, about, feeling roots, feeling place and identity without allowing them to turn you into the wrong person. Because this age militates against meaning. It militates against actual human life. Denies humanity. The machine that we're developing, which is designed to replace us, and designed to replace God, and designed to replace nature, with whatever this thing is that's emerging, denies reality as well. Wants us to live in the unreal world that we're all looking at all the time here. Scrambles our minds. So if you feel those connections, if you feel some kind of need for roots, you have to move forward into the tempest of this machine age, whilst holding on to the eternal things, whilst understanding what that actually means. Walking through the world almost understanding the dangers of too little attachment and too much of it. Quite a challenge, it's like a tightrope. So I'm going to stop, but before I stop I'm going to read something. It's a lovely quote from uh, a priest, Orthodox priest, Father Cassian Sibley, who in some ways I think is a uh, manifestation of everything I've been talking about here. I think he's a Russian Orthodox priest from Texas. And he's talking about tradition, but he's also talking about the eternal things. You've got this kind of mixture of the global and the local. People are placed in prayer in a kind of unending stream, the importance of holding on to what's been given to you in a world that militates against all of it. So he says this. I'll just end on this and then we can see what happens. What we will not preserve, we cannot share. This is true of forests and rivers and streams, of art and scientific knowledge, of friendship, culture and music. It's also true of faith worship and wisdom and theology. To jettison the past to make way for the future is not like throwing overboard excess baggage in a storm. It is rather to take an axe to one's own ship in the vain hope that one may be rescued by a more seaworthy vessel. Even in the midst of necessary change, the best sources of wisdom for making such transitions come from the past and are part of the moral wisdom handed down to us from one source or another. We're embedded in history, in culture, faith and art, for good or ill, consciously or unconsciously. It's our duty to make the best, most knowledgeable and most generous use of that tradition in service of the good. 
What is ill can't just be jettisoned, for it leaves a vacuum that cries out to be filled, and the contours of what was thrown away shape the thing with which it is filled. A subterranean influence that silently and unconsciously mars the future. What is ill in our past must rather be held up to the light and repented of. And it's ultimately the rest of our tradition that tells us that this is so. I'm just going to leave you with that, and then we're going to open it up and see what happens. Thank you very much for listening. in future podcasts. The talks are also available as videos at frontporchrepublic.com. Until next time, thanks for pulling up a chair. Find your way home